Let's uh, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for uh, this time of the year and um, the the end of 2021, the final month, and kind of Thanksgiving and our review mirror and Christmas <clears throat> in front of us. And so it's so easy, Father, to lose uh, focus on um, this really the significance of these holidays. So I, I ask, Father, as we move into the Christmas season and then after that New Year's, I just pray that we'll remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. And I pray you'll be with us uh, in Sunday school and the main service that follows the communion table, the fellowship lunch, and I pray that your name would be lifted up and glorified. I do pray for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit and... Um, people would leave here changed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you can open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Uh, The book of Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 27. Um, As you're turning there, just a couple of dates to remember. Uh, Next Sunday evening, we're having our Christmas children's play. So we invite you out for that. December the 24th, we're going to have our Christmas Eve service, which is it's. Just to believe it or not, the service lasts less than an hour. I know you guys don't believe that, but it does. And it's just a way to come and then kind of get your thoughts on the Lord through singing, traditional singing, um, a a very short message from myself. You might want to come just to see if that can happen. And um, that's obviously Christmas Eve, December 24th. It usually goes from 6 to 7 p.m., and um, we're having a conference here, we've decided, on the nation of Israel. And that's going to be May the 14th and 15th. Uh, we pick May the 14th because that's Israel's birthday. So keep that on your calendar. And I had a chance to get published in Arnold Fruchtenbaum's magazine, um, a short article that I wrote. It just came out. And there's a copy of it on the CD table, which you can get as well. So with that being said, let's continue on, if we could, our discussion of the rapture. Having already covered the content of the rapture, we from there went into question and answer. So here's some more questions that you guys have submitted concerning the rapture. And here is question number one. This one kind of makes me chuckle because I don't know how anybody could do this briefly. But it says, can you provide a brief overview of end time events? Well, I can provide an overview of end time events. I don't know how briefly I can do it. And then it says, can you please put the end time events into a, into a timeline and describe them briefly? So... With that being said, here we go. Here's the 10,000-foot level. Um, The first thing to understand about 
end time chronology is God has given to Israel a clock. It's called the 70 weeks prophecy. If you really want to drill down into the 70 weeks prophecy, um, you can go into our Daniel series. And we did, I think, six or seven sermons uh, trying to unpack that 70 weeks prophecy. But it's basically a stopwatch. And it was given to Israel in the 6th century. And it has 490 years on it. And we believe that 483 of the 490 years has elapsed. So the clock ran consecutively from the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah right up to the exact day of the triumphal entry. And the moment the nation of Israel rejected their own Messiah in the triumphal entry of Jesus on, on Palm Sunday is the moment God took, took that clock and paused it, put it on a pause. So if there's 490 years on the clock and 483 of those years have elapsed, um, can somebody tell me what 483 taken away from 490 is? Seven. No, this is not a homeschool math problem. But the interesting thing about studying the Bible is you have to know a little bit of math. So it's not a hard math problem. Um, but basically that's our whole belief that there's coming a seven-year tribulation period. And that seven-year tribulation period is not going to start until God puts his finger back on the start button or restart button. And so if the first 483 of the 490 years have been fulfilled literally, which we think they have, then it stands to reason that the final seven years will be fulfilled literally. So while God is, his finger is on the pause button, there's a gap of time. It began, um, really right there when Jesus was rejected by the nation. And that gap of time will continue all the way until God decides to restart the clock. <clears throat> not restart, but start it, not start it all over again, but tick off the final seven years. And in the interim is this gap of time that we call the age of the church. That's where we fit in. So that's where we are. We are the church age in between the prior 69 weeks or 483 years of the prophecy and then the final seven years of the prophecy. So I'm just trying to give you a logical understanding as to why we keep talking about a seven-year tribulation period yet future. This is where it comes from. So we are not in that time period now. God's finger has not moved back onto the start button. He is at work through a completely different group of people called the church, which is us. But one of these days, the age of the church will be completed... And when the age of the church is completed, there'll be a translation of the church to heaven. That's the rapture. And then God's finger will go right back to that clock and he'll push start. And this final seven years of the 490-year prophecy will elapse. And you say, well, gosh, where in the Bible could I read about those final seven years? And the answer is you read about them in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. 
So if you didn't have Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 in your Bible, you'd have no framework for that final seven years yet future. So Daniel 9, verse 27 says, He, that's the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many. Now, I believe that the many is Israel. And the reason I think that is because the many is defined as Israel in Daniel 11, verse 33. So what will start this final seven years is the Antichrist will enter into a treaty of some sort, a peace treaty, with the nation of Israel. So it says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, and the moment that happens is the moment God's finger just went back onto the start button, and the final seven years of the clock starts to elapse. But then it goes on and it says, in the middle of the week. Now, the week here is a group of seven. It's not talking about a group of seven days, but a group of seven years, a week of years. So something is going to happen right in the middle of that week. It says, but in the middle of the week, he, that's the Antichrist, will put a stop to grain and offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So halfway through the tribulation period, now keep in mind that the church is already in heaven as these events are taking place. Halfway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist will do a double cross, Um, I'm glad politicians never do that today. They always keep their words. Of course, I'm being facetious. So the Antichrist is, you know, going to basically do a double cross, and he will have guaranteed Israel's survival. But then halfway through, he'll betray Israel by going into their temple. Gosh, which means at some point there's got to be a Jewish temple. So when that temple starts getting rebuilt... Um, let's assume that they start rebuilding the temple this side of the rapture, you know that the rapture is getting even closer and closer and closer. I don't know how and when and under what circumstances the temple will be rebuilt, but Bible prophecy demands that it be rebuilt, and it has to be up and running halfway through the tribulation period for the Antichrist to desecrate. So exactly three and a half years into this, he will double-cross them. He will go into the Jewish temple, and he will desecrate it. He will declare himself to be God in the temple. There will actually be set up in the temple a statue that speaks. You'll see that in Revelation 13, verse 15. And at that point, he will betray the Jewish people by telling them they can't offer animal sacrifices anymore in the temple. So that's right at the midpoint, which means there's just three and a half years left. And after that point in time, there will be an additional three and a half years, sometimes called 42 months, sometimes called 1,260 days, sometimes called a time, times, and a half a time. These are all synonyms for three and a half years. Time, a Jewish year, times, 
two Jewish years, half a time, half a Jewish year. So two plus one plus one half equals how much? Three and a half years. And after that time period elapses, Jesus will return to the earth to rescue the now converted Jewish nation from the beast. And that will end that seven year time period. And then subsequent to that, he will start or launch the millennial kingdom. So if you didn't have Daniel 9, verse 27 in your Bible, you wouldn't have this chronological framework. But because Daniel 9, verse 27 is in your Bible, the unexpired part of the 70 weeks prophecy, we know how long the tribulation period is going to last, exactly seven years. We know exactly what will start it, the peace treaty of some sort, between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. We know exactly what's going to happen in the middle of it, the desecration of the temple. And we know exactly what's going to happen at the end of it, the second advent or the personal return of Jesus to the earth there in red, far right-hand side, which is not the rapture. The rapture will have already taken place before this chronology that I'm trying to describe elapses. So when this happens, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen just like clockwork. And the reason we believe it will happen just like clockwork is because the first 483 years of the prophecy yet passed happened like clockwork, right down to the exact day. So it stands to reason that the seven years yet future will happen like clockwork as well. By the way, in the first 483 years of the prophecy, the church didn't exist yet. The church was a mystery. So therefore, in the final seven years of the prophecy, the church can't be there either. Because the final seven years is part of the whole clock, which concerns Israel and not the church. So that's how we get our basic chronology of the end times. Rapture, then at some point there's a treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. Then at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the treat, the temple, the rebuilt Jewish temple will be desecrated. And at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus is going to come back to the earth where his feet will actually touch down on planet earth. So, so far so good, right? Well, then you get to the book of Revelation and you read about these things called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And you wonder, where do those fit into the whole thing? Here is my best understanding of where the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments transpire. I believe that the seal judgments... And the trumpet judgments will take place in the first half of the tribulation. Now that's a little different than um, what a lot of the way a lot of Bible prophecy teachers teach it. But the reason I think this is when you track the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation, and they they end around chapter eight, chapter nine. I think the seventh trumpet, if I remember right, is in chapter eleven. They end right around where the book of Revelation starts talking about the temple, the third temple. 
And so since the third temple is going to be desecrated midway through the tribulation period, I think the trumpets end before the midpoint because the whole focus of the midpoint is the temple. So if you really want to um, dive down on that and try to figure out when the trumpet judgments end, um, I recommend the article by Dr. Robert Dean of here locally at West Houston Bible Church. He wrote an article on this on the pre-trib study group website, www.pre-trib.org. And in my opinion, he does the best job in terms of chronology explaining exactly where the trumpet judgments are. But it's kind of interesting that the seventh seal will launch the trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet will launch the bowl judgments. So you have to first figure out what's the big framework, which I tried to give you through Daniel 9.27. And then you try to figure out, okay, well, then where do the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments fit? And that's pretty much my best understanding of exactly where they transpire. They will transpire chronologically. There's a lot of people trying to say, well, no, they overlap and they all happen at the same time. No, that doesn't make any sense because it says the first seal. Then after the first seal, it says, then was opened the second seal. Gosh, it sounds like they're giving an order here, right? It's like reading about the plagues in the book of Exodus. Plague one, plague two. We don't say, oh, isn't it interesting how all the plagues overlap? I mean, you wouldn't do that in the book of Exodus, so why would you do that in the book of Revelation? The only thing that's tricky is when you get to number seven, there's usually a period of silence. Now, it talks about silence in heaven for a half hour. Why is there silence in heaven for a half an hour? I think it's so so God allows us to readjust all of our charts, because maybe, maybe I didn't have it exactly right. So he, get, he gives us like a half an hour to sort of reconsider. But anyway, there's silence in heaven for half an hour, and then that launches the trumpet judgments, and then there's a period of silence at the end of the trumpet judgments, which launches the bulls. So they kind of pull out like a telescope. So are you guys with me so far? Um, you've got Daniel 9.27, which gives you that standard chronology, and hopefully you know a little bit more concerning where the trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, and seal judgments fit into the whole thing. See, the thing to understand is the book of Revelation expects the reader to have already studied the book of Daniel. Because Daniel lays the foundation. Daniel is like the basement. The book of Revelation is the ceiling. And people come to the book of Revelation not knowing anything about Daniel. And that's why they've got everything all mixed up. It's like trying to build a house on a foundation that doesn't exist. And because the chronology has already been laid down in the book of Daniel, John in the book of Revelation doesn't relay the chronology. Uh, He basically assumes we already know what the basic chronology is, and he builds on the existing chronology. So Daniel is the basement. The book of Revelation is the ceiling. 
Daniel is watching the movie in black and white. But the book of Revelation comes along and says, let me show you the same movie with color. So it's the exact same movie, right? It's just more interesting to watch it in color than black and white because you when you watch it in color, you get more details. So Daniel is the hand, the book of Revelation is the glove. And so it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Um, different pieces go different places. And the book of Revelation is a big jigsaw puzzle. The book of Daniel is another big piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And it's just a matter of knowing where to put the pieces. So what I'm doing here is systematic theology. This is how you assemble any doctrine in the Bible. This is how you put together the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, it's just here I'm using the same method that a systematic theologian would use in the area of eschatology, which is the study of the end. So now we add another piece of information to what we've already disclosed because there are five times in the book of Revelation where the chronology stops. So I would call these five non-chronological parenthetical insertions. So when you get to Revelation 6 through 19, it's moving chronologically like clockwork, but there are five times in the book where the chronology halts to give you more data on something happening in the storyline. For example, take a look, if you could, at Revelation 6, very end of the chapter. The sixth seal judgment has been opened. And you see there in verse 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? In other words, these seal judgments are so horrific, who can stand in the midst of these? Well, it's at that point that the book of Revelation gives you the first non-chronological parenthetical insertion by telling you who is going to stand during this terrible time. Answer, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So Revelation 7 is a pause in the action, which is amplifying something in the chronology. See that? And this kind of thing happens about five times in the book of Revelation. You keep the chronology intact, but you have to understand that there's five times where the chronology is temporarily suspended to give the reader more data about something that they're reading in the chronology. Flip over, if you could, to Revelation 16. And look at verse 19. This is the seventh bowl judgment. And it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So in bowl judgment number seven, Babylon, the city of Babylon, has been destroyed. So you're reading that, you're saying, the city of Babylon, I I don't really know that much about the city of Babylon. 
um, maybe the Holy Spirit could tell me more about the city of Babylon. And the Holy Spirit, through John, says, I'm so glad you asked. Because I'm going to give you a non-chronological parenthetical insertion, starting in chapter 17, verse 1, and going all the way through chapter 19, verse 6, describing almost everything you'd want to know about Babylon. In fact, if you look at chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. In other words, John, you've, you've seen the destruction of Babylon in bowl number 7. Now let me tell you a little bit about Babylon. So the very angel that destroys Babylon in this vision also says, John, let's stop for a minute. And let me give you more information on Babylon. So this kind of thing happens five times uh, in the book of Revelation. If if you like hiking, uh, think of it this way. As you're on your hiking path or your hiking trail and you're hiking up a mountain, um, at some point somebody is going to say, we need to stop and have lunch. And then you say, well, that's a good idea. Where are we going to eat lunch? I know what we'll do. We'll pick a very scenic area where we can see the path that we've come up on. And we can also see the destination that we're going to go to. And you say, well, that's a great idea. And so you have lunch and you have this wonderful scenic view. And as you're on this scenic view, you're looking backward to where you've come from. the the path you were on, and you look forward to where the path is going, and then lunch is over, and then you get back on the trail, and you continue your hike. Um, that That kind of thing happens in the book of Revelation five times. And these are what I would call lunch breaks or non chronological parenthetical insertions. Let me give you one other analogy. Um, Genesis chapter 1 gives us, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 gives us the seven days of creation. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And you read that from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. But then you get into Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 through the end of the chapter. And you're reading it and you're saying, well, wait a minute. I thought we were doing a chronology here. And when you get to Genesis 2, you're not doing a chronology anymore. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together thinking that they're both contributing to a chronology, you end up very confused. What Genesis 2 is doing is it's saying, let's take a lunch break from creation and let's see more details about what was happening on day 6. So Genesis 2 is not giving you the six days leading to the seventh day of rest all over again, it's pausing the chronology and drilling down on day number six. And so when you read it in that light, suddenly Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 can be harmonized. If you try to read all of them chronologically, you'll be confused. And so if you can understand that, 
the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, then you can understand exactly what John is doing in the book of Revelation. John has uh, five Genesis 2s, so to speak, in the book of Revelation. There are five times where the chronology deliberately stops to amplify something that's happening in the chronology. So the first non-chronological parenthetical insertion is the revelation of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Revelation 7. The second non-chronological parenthetical insertion is the announcement of no more delay and the ministry of the two Jewish witnesses. Revelation 10, verse 1, through Revelation 11, verse 13. The third non-chronological parenthetical insertion is Israel's flight as the Antichrist is trying to wipe out Israel, Revelation 12. That follows with a description of the two beasts that are causing all of the trouble, Revelation 13. And then Revelation 14 is six scenes of hope in a hopeless situation, chapter 14. So that's a big chunk of material there. But it's not part of the chronology. It's part of the time where the chronology stops to give more information about what's happening in the chronology. The fourth non-chronological parenthetical insertion is in Revelation 16, 13 through 16, where the armies of the world are gathered demonically to Armageddon, which is a mountain in northern Israel, to participate in the final battle. So that's when the Euphrates River is dried up to expedite their path from the Far East into the Middle East to participate in Armageddon. And that's where they're making that long journey and a third of the world's population is wiped out as this army is demonically moving and being summoned. And then the fifth uh, non-chronological parenthetical insertion is the description of Babylon's fall. Revelation 17, verse 1, through Revelation 19, verse 6. And then after you get outside of Babylon's fall in Revelation 19, verse 7, through the end of the book... The chronology continues. So this is why so many people are sort of confused about the chronology of the book of Revelation is they don't really understand this fundamental that I'm giving you here about these five pauses. So now the issue becomes, well, okay, the chronology is put on hold for a lunch break. At what point do these five non-chronological parenthetical uh, insertions transpire. And that's where this chart helps you. See, we know that the seventh bowl will launch the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet will launch, I may have said that wrong, the seventh seal, there we go, will launch the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet will launch the seven bowls. It's pulling out like a telescope. 
But you just told us that the chronology pauses five times. Can you tell us where in the book of Revelation the chronology pauses? And there's a pretty simple way to to keep this straight. Whenever you get to a six or a seven in a series, look for a pause or look for a lunch break. So there is a lunch break in between seal judgment six and seal judgment seven. That's where you put chronological insertion number one, the information about the 144,000 Jews. Then there's another lunch break between trumpet six and trumpet seven. And that's where you put the information of Revelation 10 and 11 no more delay, and the ministry of the two witnesses. And then there is another non-chronological parenthetical insertion between bowl six and bowl seven. And that's where you put Revelation 6, verses 13 through 16, of the nations of the earth being gathered to Armageddon for the final battle. So you see what's happening here? Um, it's just an easy way to remember it. You're reading the book of Revelation you're, and you're getting to a six in a series, whether it's seal six, trumpet six, bowl six. And you're saying to yourself, I remember what Pastor Andy said at Sugarland Bible Church. And I remember what he said about a gap between a six and a seven. I'm at a six in a series. And so now I'm looking for a lunch break, right? So... Where these lunch breaks fit is easy to remember. When Just remember it, it occurs after a 6 and before a 7 in each of these end-time judgments. And then the only other thing to remember is there's yet another lunch break after trumpet 7. And there's yet another lunch break after bowl 7. So in between a six and a seven, there's always going to be a lunch break. That, that, that accounts for three of the five. But where do the other two lunch breaks fit? The other two lunch breaks fit after a seven, trumpet seven, and bowl seven. So the whole thing sort of looks like this. You're going through the seal judgments. You get to a six, and then there's a pause in the action, and that's where you have Revelation 7 which is the ministry of the 144,000. Once that is complete, Revelation 7, then you'll have Revelation 8, information about the seventh seal judgment, where there's silence in heaven for a half hour, where the Lord is saying to me, you might want to do a little refinement on your chart, because you've got about an A- minus at this point. So if you want to improve your score... Um, You might want to refine it a little. Of course, I'm trying to be facetious, doing something to try to keep you all awake. So the seventh seal will launch the trumpets, and then you'll get to trumpet six, and you're at a six. So in between a six and a seven, there's another lunch break, and then there's another lunch break in between bowl six and bowl seven. So not much of a problem other than just remember that when you're at trumpet seven, there's another lunch break. Revelation 12 through 14. Israel's flight, the two beasts, and the six scenes of hope.
And then once you get to bowl number seven, that's our last lunch break. Babylon has fallen. We would want more explanation about Babylon. And so we need to know where Babylon fits. And John discusses Babylon after bowl seven, but before the chronology starts all over again. So once you finish all of that, you get to chapter 19. And you say, okay, the five lunch breaks are over. What's the rest of the story? And John says, gosh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me finish the story for you. And so you have probably four or five prophetic scenes that happen, which take you from the destruction of Babylon, which happened in Bowl 7, all the way to the end of the story. And those events are, number one, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is described in Revelation 19. That is not the rapture. The rapture has already transpired at least seven years before. This is the second advent of Christ where he comes back to rescue Israel and establish his kingdom on the earth. And then the chronology continues as you move from Revelation 19 to Revelation 20. So what's going on in Revelation 20? That's the thousand-year kingdom that Jesus will establish on the earth. So people say, well, Andy, um, everybody today is saying that we're in the kingdom now. And my answer to that is we're not in the kingdom now because Revelation 19 hasn't happened yet. You guys with me on this thinking that chapter 20 comes after chapter 19? I mean, I, I don't think this is rocket science. You have to apply a little discipline to learn this, but you start to see a basic chronology and you say, well, how come you're a premillennialist, meaning Jesus comes back first and then the kingdom starts? Well, my answer is chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. And because chapter 19 comes before chapter 20, In the church age, I'm not going to be running around wasting my time trying to be a kingdom builder. Because Jesus is going to establish his kingdom after his second advent, pre-millennialism. Pre, he comes back first, then the millennial kingdom follows. See, a lot of these social justice type churches today have got everybody all worked up about, you know, critical race theory, systematic racism, institutional racism, uh, the ozone layer, global warming, universal health care, you know, mincome, meaning we all get a guaranteed income. And the reason they keep talking about all of this stuff is they think that they are building the kingdom of God on the earth. By the way, John Calvin tried to do that. He tried to, in Geneva, build God's kingdom on the earth without the king present and do some historical reading on how well that went. Anytime man tries to build God's kingdom for him, the result is always a disaster because Jesus will establish the kingdom in his time when he comes back in chapter 19. So because chapter 20 comes takes place after chapter 19, I, as a pastor, am not going to waste any time trying to build God's kingdom. 
What I'm going to be doing is working alongside Jesus Christ under his authority as he builds today, not the kingdom, but the church. And see, it's just basic chronological things like this that keep your perspective in the right direction. So after Babylon falls, because Babylon has been destroyed in bold judgment number seven, then Jesus returns to the earth, chapter 19. He establishes his long-awaited 1,000-year reign, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And then the unsaved of all ages are summoned in what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Where are the souls of the unsaved? Well, they're currently in a place called Hades, awaiting their resurrected bodies, where they will be brought before the Lord. And it's described for you very clearly in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And as their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, in other words, they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, and the judicial determination is made, they, in their resurrected bodies, are at that point transferred from Hades into the lake of fire forever. Now, that's a, that's a horrific scene there. And when you study that, you start to figure out, my goodness, if that's the fate of the unsaved, maybe we should share the gospel more frequently with the unsaved, because they have no idea what's coming. So that particular judgment will take place at the end of the thousand years. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It has nothing to do with the Bema Seat Judgment of Rewards, which is our judgment as uh, church-age believers, but it is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Then, chronologically, God takes this earth, Revelation 21, verse 1, and he destroys it by fire. And you sort of have to factor in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 into that. And why does God have to destroy this earth by fire? He has to destroy this earth by fire because it's been contaminated by sin. Adam's sin, end of Romans 8, negatively affected the cosmos. All of the cosmos is in a state of travail and groaning because of what Adam did. And so because of the negative effects of sin, God has to take current creation as it, as it exists and he has to dissolve it by fire. And, you know, it's sort of a description of this earth being dissolved immediately by God. And you read that and you say, well, hmm, if that's true and that's going to happen... And by the way, it will, because all of God's prophecies happen literally, don't they? If that's going to happen, why am I so invested in this world, since it's all going to burn anyway? Um, Why am I so busy rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, when we're told here that the, the Titanic is going to go under? And this happens only at a particular point in history, because Jesus has already asserted his authority over this world in the thousand-year kingdom. He's won, in other words. And so now, this, with that battle won, 
and Christ's authority reasserted over fallen earth. Now the earth can be dissolved by fire. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. See, everybody today is talking about the big bang. You want your big bang? The big bang is not at the beginning. The big bang is at the end. The evolutionist has the whole thing backwards because they don't start with God's word. So the earth is dissolved by fire and then it is replaced with the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22, which is our ultimate destination, which will last forever. Um, It specifically says that nothing unholy will ever enter it. Because everything that that is unholy has already been destroyed. And the unsaved are in their place in the lake of fire, along with the beast, along with the false prophet, and along with Satan himself. Satan is now a thing of the past. Evil is just a distant memory. And we move from there into the new heavens and the new earth in which dwell righteousness. So the story of the Bible is from a garden to a city the city here being the New Jerusalem, the garden being the Garden of Eden, from a garden to a city with a cross in between. That's a a great summation of the scripture. So, you know, you look at the whole thing here, you've got the end of the church age with the rapture, you've got the seven-year tribulation period, I've tried to explain where that comes from, I've tried to explain where the bowls and the trumpets and the seals fit. I've tried to explain where the five non-chronological parenthetical insertions fit. And then at the end of that seven-year process, Jesus returns to the earth and starts his thousand-year kingdom. And then at the end of the thousand-year kingdom, you have the great white throne judgment, which we tried to explain. Then the dissolution of the present cosmos via fire. And then from there, you move on into the eternal state. So this is not just um, facts and data on a chart. It's a revelation of the priorities of God. And if you understand the priorities of God, and the only way you could understand the priorities of God is by consulting his word, because only God has an eternal perspective, it helps you reorient your life in the present. The way this has helped me is as a pastor, I'm not pursuing kingdom building today, because I have an end times chronology where I know the particular time in history when the kingdom will be established on the earth. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, If that wasn't confusing, let me try to confuse you here with the second question. At the time of the death of a believer in Christ, what happens to the soul? Where does the soul go at the time of the rapture Does the soul re-enter the resurrected body of the believer? At the time of death of an unbeliever in Christ, what happens to that soul? Where does it go forever? So these are eschatological questions. And if I could get a little bit more cool air up here, it would would help me. All this talk about hell has made me sort of... (laughs) 
It's made me sort of heat up a little bit. There we go. Look at that. You you have not because you ask not. So these are questions about the internal, excuse me, the intermediate state. All right, the thing to understand about man or humanity is we basically have two parts. There's your physical body, which is the senses, you know, sight, smell, taste, feel, etc. But you were not just designed by God as a physical being. You were designed with a suke, the Greek calls it, or a soul. Those are the parts of you that are you that I can't see. So it's the seat of your emotions. It's the seat of your individual personality. It's the seat of volition or free will. It's the seat of intellect. And so there is a material part of a person and an immaterial part of a person. There is the soul or the soma in Greek. And then there is the suke. Excuse me, I said that wrong. The soul or the, uh, excuse me, first there's the body, soma. There we go. Then there's the soul or the suke. So you have soma, body, suke, soul. The part of you that's the soul is designed to live forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has set eternity into the hearts of men. So you will be alive, every single human being on the earth will be alive somewhere a million years from now because of this reality called the suke or the soul. Now, when a person dies, physically dies, the two separate. The soma, body, and suke separate from each other. In fact, that's what death means in the Bible. It's a separation. This is what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ himself when he died on the cross. Look, if you will, at Matthew 27, verse 50. It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, which I understand as a synonym for the soul. In other words, when Jesus died, body and soul separated. There was a separation between the material and the immaterial. This identical thing happened to Stephen the first martyr of the church age. And notice Acts 7, and notice verse 59. This is the first martyr of the church age, and it says, They went on stoning Stephen, and he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So when Stephen died through martyrdom, the body and the soul the material and the immaterial separated from each other. That's basically what death is in the scripture. Now, a resurrection is the exact opposite. Death is a separation. Resurrection is a reunion. 
when a person is resurrected, essentially what happens is that immaterial part of them, which has been separated at death, goes back into their body, except their body is now in a resurrected state. And so that becomes a reunion. So the question is, well, what happens to the believer's soul or spirit pre-rapture when they die? The answer to that question is, for the Christian, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When, when you die, and let's say this happens before the rapture, and there's a separation between the material and the immaterial, your immaterial component immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you look just for a minute at the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul says, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says, I, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to, de- to depart, to be with Christ, for that is very much, what's that last word there? Better. When a Christian dies, they're in a better place. Because the immaterial part of them that's separated from the body goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. Paul says, you know, I'm kind of torn between the two. I know that as my soul is in my body and I haven't died yet, I can be fruitful for Christ's church here on the earth. And Paul actually sort of gets mad at the Philippians. He says, you know, I guess I have to stay in this state for you people. But if I had my choice, Paul says, I would rather die. Because when I die, the soul and the body will separate And my soul will go into the presence of the Lord, and that soul will be in a place that is much better. See that? So these are all verses that begin to kind of amplify the intermediate state prior to the rapture. So we do not teach this doctrine of soul sleep, where it's this idea that when you die, your soul kind of goes into this subconscious state. And it awaits the final resurrection. There, there is no biblical support for that. There might be a belief in it in Eastern mysticism or Eastern religions or in the kingdom of the cults, but the Bible knows no such doctrine. You are completely and totally aware and conscious in the presence of Christ immediately upon a death. So when the resurrection happens and our resurrection occurs at the point of the rapture, the two will come back together. The body, the material, and the soul, the immaterial, will have a reunion. It's just you're going to look a lot better. And I'm going to look a lot better. And you're going to look at me and say, Andy, is that is that you? You kind of look look like Andy, but man, you look good. What have you been doing? Been working out and have you been on a diet? What's going on? No, I'm in my resurrected body. This is how it's supposed to be. 
So that's why we're looking forward to this rapture. In fact, the departed saints in the presence of the Lord now are looking forward to the rapture as well because that's when they receive their resurrected bodies. But don't feel sorry for them. They're in a better place, in a conscious place, which is much better. So that's my best understanding of the intermediate state prior to the rapture for the believer. Where it gets really tough to talk about, because this is a real thing for real people, is let's talk just for a moment about the unbeliever. I mean, what exactly happens when an unbeliever dies? Their body and soul are separated as well. Their soul does not go into the presence of the Lord. Their soul goes into a place called Hades, which is a place of conscious torment. Probably the part of the Bible that best explains this is Luke 16, verses 29 through 31 which everybody today is trying to sort of play this down and say, well, this is just another parable. Don't build intermediate state doctrine from this story. This is just a parable. And that is so problematic because Jesus, when he spoke in parables, did not use personal names. In this event, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, you're going to see three personal names used. Number one, Lazarus. Number two, Abraham. And number three, at the very end, it mentions Moses. So as much as people try to play this down by turning it into a parable, this language that's being used here by Christ defies his his normal operating procedure when he speaks in parables. And you, you know this account very well. It's the rich man in unbelief, who died and went into a place of conscious torment. So severe that he wanted Lazarus to come over and he wanted to warn his brothers and all of these kinds of things. And that is where unbelievers are now. They're in this place called Hades as they await their final resurrection. Because believers and unbelievers both are going to be resurrected. I know that's a a new concept for a lot of people. But Daniel 12 verse 2 is very clear because it talks about a resurrection for the unsaved and it talks about a resurrection for the saved. Everybody is on a track in God where they're going to be placed in a resurrected body. Believers in their new body will experience eternity with God. Unbelievers in their resurrected body will experience eternity in another destination called the lake of fire. So when the time comes for the great white throne judgment, and I've tried to show you earlier where that shows up on the chronology. It's after the millennial kingdom. All of these souls of unsaved people are summoned out of Hades. And they are placed in resurrected bodies. I don't call them glorified bodies because they're not in glory, but they're in a resurrected body. And then you have the situation described at the great white throne, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. They've never trusted Christ. 
It's judicially validated. And at that point, they're transferred from Hades, now in resurrected bodies, into the lake of fire, where they experience torment forever, which is where Satan had been deposited, Revelation 20, verse 10, and where the beast and the false prophet had been deposited a thousand years later, Revelation 19, verse 20. So notice what it says, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Did you catch that? At this judgment, there's two sets of books. There's books, plural, and then there's a book, singular. Well, why is that? Well, the rest tells us. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. You see that? See, what's happening at this great white throne judgment is all of these souls are brought out of Hades. They're in resurrected bodies. And the Lord essentially pulls out the book, the book of life. And he shows them that they don't belong to him because their name is not inscribed in the book of life. In other words, they never trusted in Christ as Savior for salvation by faith alone. That's why Jesus said things like this when he sent out the disciples to minister. They came back, remember, all happy that the demons were in submission to them. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are in submission to you. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. Because if your name is not in this book, you're in for an eternity of problems. So their name is not found written in the book, so they're judged according to the books. Now, what would be in the books? It tells you. It's their deeds. Why is God looking at their deeds? Because the determining factor at this point is going to be how severe eternal retribution is going to be. I mean, hell is going to be hell, but it's going to be more hell for some people than others. You know, you would think that a man like Adolf Hitler and all of the things that he did, he would be punished throughout eternity at a more severe level. You know, Jesus talked about things like this, about one man being beaten with a few blows, one man beaten with many blows. Just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there are degrees of punishment in hell. That's why the books are opened, which is a record of their deeds. Now notice this, it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades, weren't we just talking about Hades with Abraham, Lazarus and the rich man. The sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then Once everyone is emptied out of Hades into a new location called the Lake of Fire, 
where Satan is already in, along with the beast and the false prophet, then there's no longer a purpose for Hades, and Hades is destroyed. Because it says in verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Then he says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. So if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. I mean, think about that. If I'm born once physically, but never born again spiritually, then here's my future. Um, I'll die physically, and then my soul and body ultimately go to this terrible place called the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Conversely, if I'm born twice, born physically, and then there comes a point in my life where I hear the gospel and I trust the gospel for salvation by faith alone, then the absolute worst thing that can happen to me is I can physically die. And that in and of itself might not even be an issue because we could be the rapture generation, although I'm not promising that. But the very worst thing that could happen is I could physically die. But if I physically die, it's actually to my benefit because where does my soul go as a Christian? Into the presence of the Lord. Born once, die twice. Born twice, the worst prospect is die once. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that is really my best take on question number two concerning the intermediate state. And speaking of intermediate state, we need an intermediate state, don't we, in between Sunday school and the main service. So let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for these questions that have come in, grateful for the revelation you've given us concerning the end. Help this not to be just... uh, swell need information to absorb but help us to understand that these are real people experiencing real consequences and help us to live a life accordingly as we share the good news with other people we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory we ask these things in jesus name and god's people said amen happy intermission